Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. It's finally over. After months of legal and political drama, Governor Eric Greitens announced on Tuesday that he's stepping down from his office. I know, and people of good faith know, that I am not perfect, but I have not broken any laws nor committed any offense worthy of this treatment. I will let the fairness of this process be judged by history. For now, Greitens will leave a legacy of a man who squandered a major opportunity to enact policy change and leave a mark to fulfill his not-so-secret presidential ambitions. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Joe Manis and Rachel Lipman join me to talk about soon-to-be former Governor Greitens' legacy and what the past few months mean for Missouri. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studios in St. Louis today is... Reporter Rachel Lippman. And... Reporter Joe Manis. It's a historic day that we're recording this podcast, and I'm not... There's no sarcasm there. No, and actually, this will probably be the last Greitens podcast. Uh, I mean, we, we may have... Parson podcast, <laughs> but or or just a roundup of other things. But this will be the final edition of politically speaking, rounding up the news from the Eric Greitens saga. Because if you don't know already, uh, Governor Greitens is resigning today. We're recording this on Friday at one ten p.m. By the time you hear this, he'll have about two or three hours to go before. He resigns, and then Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson becomes governor. And uh, and Twitter has been full of pictures of the moving vans, basically two guys in a truck, and that's the truth. No, it's outside not basically. The, it is two guys in a truck. Outside the governor's mansion. Well, there was a couple smaller trucks. Okay. Well, um, well mo- Moving his stuff out. We're going to reflect, I think, on the lessons of the last five months in the last part of the show, but I think we would be kind of – papering over some important points that we didn't talk about the resignation itself. So um, around 3 p.m. on Tuesday, I started getting text messages from some of my sources in Jefferson City, and I was told that news is coming, be prepared, can't say anything else. And it was not from somebody who was part of the anti-Greitens movement. Um, And then I I called somebody who was part of the anti-Greitens movement and they said that uh, Greitens was planning to resign around 4. Yeah. He turned out that he resigned around 4.15. So this was one of those instances where the rumor mill was not a rumor. It was actually true. And um, he made a pretty short speech to reporters, didn't take any questions. Did not apologize. And no. and he, he blamed some of his enemies for what he was doing. I'm going to play a clip right now that's kind of part and parcel with that. Millions of dollars of mounting legal bills, endless personal attacks designed to cause maximum damage to family and friends. And it's clear that for the forces that oppose us, there is no end in sight. 
I cannot allow those forces to continue to cause pain and difficulty to the people that I love. I think that a lot of people did not like it, that, that speech, Joe, because there was very little contrition. Um, he didn't really admit that he had done, did anything wrong. And you, you've seen resignation speeches before and resignation statements. I think uh, former state senator Jeff Smith posted his on Twitter where he was very contrite before he went to prison for around a year. What did you make of it? Well, I, in some ways, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I covered Greitens, arguably Greitens last big press conference uh, around the Capitol, like the second to the last day of the regular legislative session that was supposed to be about biofuels and ended up being a defiant speech where he was blasting the low-income tax credit industry and everybody else who he believed was behind um, his problems. And he didn't at that. I mean, he really was, you know, fiery. And so in some ways, when I first started hearing the, the rumors, too, I was a little taken off guard. But I think most of it, I believe that some of this was tied to the judge's ruling that morning that was going to require him to turn in some financial information. And then apparently the talks that had been going on with the district, I mean, the uh, circuit attorney's office over the weekend. But I think he is not going quietly. He is ticked off. He believes he's being forced out. And really, he does blame mainly his fellow Republicans because, frankly, they deserve either the credit or the blame, depending on which side you are, for him leaving. Rachel. In context, knowing what we know now, that there was this deal in the works for him to step down in exchange for one of the pending criminal charges being dropped, it's a speech that makes sense. He still doesn't think he's done anything, but this is a way to resolve this situation and like Joe said, yeah, he hasn't been con conciliatory, apologetic in any of his speeches. Uh, the closest I think he came might have been the day the charges were dropped when he was saying, you know, I appreciate those who have stood by me. I know I have caused people pain and now I am going to go correct this. So I think people were disappointed. But I think, like Joe said, this is par for the course and is a speech that makes sense in the context of this deal being struck. You know, one of the things that I kind of alluded to in an earlier podcast is when House Speaker John Deal resigned. He had Republicans and Democrats who were openly praising him and his leadership, and uh, the, they were not providing the same level of intensity and the intense hatred that you saw towards Greitens for what he did. I think part of that is because Greitens treated the legislature so poorly and with such disdain and did made policy decisions like freezing the low-income housing tax credit that made very powerful people angry. Well, because he didn't consult with them. I think that's part of it. I'm not defending what he did well, or didn't, but, but he didn't talk to anybody my, before he my, did it. My point is he was a jerk to people. I mean, there's no other way to, to put it. He wasn't a jerk to me. And he wasn't a jerk to you, Joe. I think he treated us pretty well. well but to other people, he was. Well, he would ignore us, but he was never a jerk to me. I want to make Ignoring that clear. and being a jerk are, uh, you know, you could, and Jason, you've said this many times on the podcast, he should not have ignored the media. But being a jerk and abusive to individuals is different than ignoring Yes, them. exactly. And I also think, too, one of the things that separates it from the deal situation is that uh, the charges were serious. I mean, deal, what deal did was horrible. I think what he did uh, texting with that intern deserved more scrutiny than it deserved. 
But Greitens was accused of some pretty heinous things. It made a lot of us very uncomfortable even to describe some of the things that were so shocking. And the lack of responsibility that you heard in that speech kind of, I think, goes part and parcel with why people are not sad to see him go. You know, this reminded me in some ways, <laughs> okay, of Bill Webster back in 1992. He was the Missouri Attorney General. He was, and in 91, he was, he was considered the guy to beat to be the next governor. Everybody assumed he was going to be the governor. And boiling it into a nutshell, all of a sudden things did not fall right. His powerful father died. Uh, Roy Blunt and others came up with stuff about him. He was the target of a big federal investigation having to do with how he was handling stuff in his office. And in the end, he had to plead guilty to some stuff. And I will never forget... He called me a couple times. One time, this was like three days before the election, he was on the phone with me for three hours venting about stuff and venting about who was out to get him and this and that. And in his last uh, news conference on the steps of one of the court buildings downtown, he was railing against the press, railing against his enemies. And for what, for whatever reason, some of the stuff that Greitens, his uh, stuff the last few weeks, really reminded me of Bill Webster. I mean, Bill Webster's demeanor and attitude. Well, and you had Kim Gardner bring that up in, in her statement when she announced that this deal had been reached, basically saying, this isn't a witch hunt. This is something the governor did to himself. Contrary to Mr. Greitens' past statements, there was no witch hunt. No plans to bring pain to him or his family. Quite the contrary, the consequences Mr. Greitens has suffered he brought upon himself by his actions, his statements, his decisions, his ambition, and pursuit for power. Many of Mr. Greitens' former colleagues and friends cooperated with our prosecution, not because they were threatened or harassed, but because it was the right thing to do. I remain confident that we have the evidence required to pursue charges against Mr. Greitens, but sometimes pursuing charges is not the right or just thing to do for our city or our state. And just to kind of make it clear to our listeners here, this is talking about the computer tampering charge. These are the allegations that he had used his Mission Continues donor list for uh, raising money for his campaign. This is separate from the initial charges related to the relationship with the woman, chaos. This, this is the charge that's being talked about here is the computer tampering charge. And, uh, you know, that kind of surprised a lot of people. I mean, I would argue, I'm not an attorney, but the evidence in the in the computer tampering case was pretty strong. He already admitted that he used the Michigan Continues list for political purposes, and I think that the defense was basically going to be like, it's not a big deal. It's because like a phone book. Because he came up with it, yeah. But, but, but it actually did, f did put the Michigan Continues in danger of being of violating federal nonprofit laws. And, and I, I don't disagree with that. And I'm, I'm not endorsing what their defense was. I'm literally stating what they were going to say. Rachel, you have the agreement in mm -hmm. front of you. Some of it is blacked out. But yes. what, are, what were some of the, the, the aspects of that that are noteworthy? So it's a kind of actually a pretty simple agreement. It's just two pages, a, a page long, really. The second page is, um, is the signatures of the attorneys. And it basically says that the circuit attorney realizes that um, 
going to trial and these computer tampering charges would be very would be fairly expensive and you couldn't predict the outcome and that it would be in the interest of justice to get this done expeditiously and then you get to the two sort of core parts of the agreement the first is that as soon as governor greitens turns in his uh resignation letter which as of 1:20 p.m the secretary of state's office doesn't have yet but we right. are having email problems here so it may be kind of hung up in a system somewhere uh, the, the notice that it's been received, that when this resignation letter is turned over to the Secretary of State's office, the court may dismiss the charges with prejudice, which means they cannot be filed again. So this case can, cannot be prosecuted again. And then it absolves Gardner of any potential civil suits over the way she prosecuted this case, including of the investigator who caused all of this trouble, William Tisby. Here is one of Greitens' attorneys, Jim Martin, on this entire deal. That the politics of of this entire uh, circus around Governor Greitens has always been concerning. Um, and it's not that often that you have criminal matters that involve high elected officials. So is that is this, it's not unique, but it's unusual. Um, I think that we're going to have to wait and see what happens on the other side of the state where the uh, circuit attorney there, a.k.a. prosecutor. Gene uh, Peters Baker. Yes, is kind of looking at some of the same stuff. And what happens in Jefferson City and the courts there? I mean, the judge put out some ruling, I think, yesterday. They were fighting over stuff yesterday and this morning. So this this stuff over the campaign finance stuff, I think, could live on for a while. And what's funny is that was not while it there were I've contended for two years that that was the stuff where he might face more legal problems. I'll say it again. The, most of the Republican leaders in this state, including in the General Assembly, weren't that concerned about that stuff. They were going to let that go, even though they were irked about it. But the stuff with the woman kind of really uh, uh, just get cast a bad image. And then when he didn't go, then they switched to this. I think it's... Um, I, th- I think it's a fascinating drama in some ways. I, I do want to read this statement from Scott Simpson, the attorney for the woman identified as KS. My client and I are thankful to all the individuals involved that honored my client's privacy by not publishing her name and other identifying information. Our gratitude goes out to the media, the House Committee, the St. Louis Circuit Attorney, and the Special Prosecutor, among others. Now that the governor has resigned, I hope my client can go back to being a private citizen and put this matter behind her. I I mean, I think, to be frank, we're all kind of uh, relieved that this entire saga is over. But nobody, I think, is more relieved than the woman at the heart of this case. Well, because she wasn't the one who brought this up. This was her ex-husband who started all this. Well, and what's interesting is is the bite that we played from um, Governor Greitens is talking about, you know, maximum damage to family and friends. That's basically what his attorneys were trying to do to her, was inflict maximum damage on her reputation. I know you guys talked a lot about what came out in her deposition to the House, uh, from the House committee last week. But, I mean, you don't ask that kind of stuff if you're not trying to destroy this woman. It, it, uh, yeah, like the, the whole maximum damage to family and friends thing. It's I know that attorneys are hired to advocate for their clients, and they thought this was going to be the best way to do it, but... Well, well, and I I have never figured some of that out. Now, Claire McCaskill said sometimes in these depositions, uh, lawyers ask things, but she said they never come out publicly. But she also was concerned with the aggressive tone that was taken. Um, and and then the stuff that it was aggressive about. I mean, it's one thing to get aggressive about, you know, what did you see? Did you really do this? But for some of the, st- the, the tone which they took on 
a lot of this stuff had nothing to do yeah. with Brighton's. It had to do with her personal life. Yeah. Had nothing to do with anything. It was basically out to just destroy her character. And she wasn't the one who was getting this secret money that was going to the governor and also going to uh, the lawyer for her ex-husband and, and, and all this other and, stuff. And that and, was, and that was what I wanted to talk about next. Because I saw a statement from uh, House Budget Chairman Scott Fitzpatrick yesterday. And Fitzpatrick is not, like, going to be the House Speaker, but he is a pretty prominent member of Republican leadership, and he's going to be a major player going forward after 2019. Part of the statement that caught my attention is this. Although this disappointing chapter in our state's history is coming to an end, it is my hope that the General Assembly will continue to work to identify the source of the money that was used to finance the attorneys that were hired to expose the governor. I also hope that investigation will extend to the potentially illegal fundraising practices and activity of the A New Missouri organization, which financed unfounded attacks on members of the General Assembly from the governor's own party in an attempt to further his agenda. Let's talk about A New Missouri first. Right now, it's, it's again, 1.30. That group is supposed to turn over documents to the House. But from this statement, it seems that the House is still interested in finding out where this dark money came from and and how it was used to influence Missouri politics. And I think it's kind of a sign to me, at least, that Republicans are no longer going to rationalize this type of campaign practices. Yeah, but I don't know if they're going to go so far as to um, require in Missouri, as in some other states, that 501c4s that are active in, in state or local elections have to identify their donors in the in those states, state, the state of New York, for example. But I, while they're saying this stuff now, I'll be interested to see what they say five, six months from now, because often uh, things fade away. Uh, you've got a few, a handful of officials who have their own such groups. Um, this is something that the Democrats have been concerned about, too. But you've got, like, some outspoken uh, Greitens critics like Greg Keller, who represents another 501c4 who's threatened to go to court if they try to do anything. And you have Democratic groups benefiting from 501c4s, too. Correct. The minimum wage initiative has Correct. taken a million dollars. That's my point. From nonprofits that haven't disclosed their donors. That's my point. The More same, than a million dollars. At the same time, you have people who are sincerely concerned you have some of their allies also sincerely benefiting. And I just don't know if this is going to be resolved, uh, at least in the short term. Now, I've heard that Parson may make some sort of announcement that he's not going to uh, create any such group. He could contribute to this debate, but I don't know if he wants to go there. I do want to talk about the second aspect of that statement, the one that everybody who wanted Greitens out called a sideshow. And that's the $120,000 that went to Watkins, which we've talked about a lot on this show. Well, Greggins is gone now, okay? Whoever gave Fawn that money to give to Watkins succeeded in their goal. But what I, as I said last week, um, I think that there's real discomfort among both parties that that sort of political tactic was used when the woman herself didn't provide any permission or, or any sort of... Of of, she didn't provide her her blessing her for consent. that. Her she consent. She gave no consent to so much of this in this case. So I mean, Joe, you you've said many times that we don't know where that money came from right now. There's a lot of smoke that that is emanating from at least one powerful 
low-income housing tax credit developer. Well, I don't want to get into who may or may not have, because frankly, I think that we're getting close to the line there. But I think that because until we have evidence, uh, we're never we we may never know. But, and again, because there may be some players, there may be some people who were playing both sides on this. And I think that um, the statement that you read uh, from the lawmaker, while he makes some good points, there was even without that money. Because of some of the stuff that was going on in the legal fights over the campaign finance and stuff, I, the Greitens may have been forced out anyway. I mean, as far as the 120000 But is there no consequences for that? I'm not saying there shouldn't be. I'm just saying that it's going to be whether or not lawmakers are willing to take that step because it's probably going to affect both sides. I think I'm real curious to see how this plays Rachel, out. Rachel, what do you think the consequences should be for, for that money being given without the woman's consent? Should should people just let it go because they don't like Greitens? Or should we just, should there be punishment for that? Whether it be this, whoever gave it being ostracized from whatever industry that they're from, or possibly looking to see if that, well, what, what do you think? People are obviously free to sort of use their money how they want to use it. People are free to accept money from who they want to for these things. It's the the money part, yes, bothers me in the sense that who does it get turned against next kind of thing? Who who is the next target, you know, regardless of party, regardless of whatever, removes politics from sort of the people is a weird way to put it, but just sort of gets back to that whoever has the power to throw the money around. The whole thing to me is is the the unwilling the unwilling participant who got dragged into this, who was at the heart of this. And she's faced so far, except for the governor, more of the consequences really than anyone in this case. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, it's it's, not, yeah. It, you know, so so the, punishing for the money, I don't know. I don't know what you do for people spending well, money for how they want to do I, it. I but. think I think well, I don't think people care what I think. But now that Greitens is gone, you know. The people that gave Fawn that money won. Like they, they won. Okay. Well, well but, but, but they might have won anyway. My but, point but, is, but it doesn't make what they did right. No, no but my not. point is, even if they hadn't given the money, the way the train was going, I think. I mean, it may have affected the timing slightly, but I don't think so. I really think if you look at most of the court decisions that were going on, it was not directly by that money. What the money helped do was, well, frankly was help fuel this ex-husband's drive, and that's despicable to but, me. But, but, but I do not want to speculate for legal reasons on who may or may not have well, given them. Okay. I, I mean, I, to, to me, it's um, just totally lost my train of, of thought here. I, I don't know that it happens as quickly as it did without the story being pushed out into the public. Right. Is there going to be a special committee form to look into any of this if there isn't a charge, if there isn't a story. And we can raise questions all we want about the process and the consent and the the ethics of how it all happened. But I think, you know, like it or not how it happened without the story, without the way it came out, you don't have the special House committee. The House committee isn't going to get involved in this without the story. Yeah. Well, let's reflect on the last not only five months, but the last year and a half, because it's a weird period of time in Missouri politics. It was somebody who was in office who had never been in office before, who made a lot of important policy decisions and a lot of controversial policy decisions, and had a style that I think alienated a lot of people. 
And I'm going to play a clip now from uh, Representative Michael Butler, who I talked with right after the governor uh, a resigned. A Democrat from St. Louis. And uh, he made a point that I've been thinking about for a while. I think that Eric Grimes will look back at this and, and, and remember that he got to be the governor of his home state in his 40s, in his first election. And he had so much power and so much uh, ability in front of him. And yet he squandered it on the possibility to be president, which will never occur now. I thought if it was me, I, he, he had a, a chance to appoint judges, to reduce crime, to to change programs for the better in a bipartisan way. When people he came in under a wave of cleaning up government in a way that the Democrats and Republicans alike wanted to work with him. And yet he decided not to all because he wanted to work in D.C. I, I think the the motif of missed opportunity has been on my mind a lot right now because I wrote an article, I think, in November 2016 about how Greitens had the ability to be the most impactful Republican governor ever. It had really nothing to do with his national ambitions or his resume. It was just the fact that he was a Republican governor with a very Republican legislature. And while I don't want to say he didn't do anything, because he did, I, I think he, I agree with the representative. I think he squandered his opportunity um, through not only what he did before he was governor, but while he was governor. Joe, what do you think? Well, I think a lot of this had to do with using the a governor's office, of all things, as a stepping stone and not really paying that much attention to really what the job entailed. Um, I, some of his lack of knowledge about what a governor does showed up even during the campaign, but for various reasons, partly mainly because of the Trump train, in my view, a lot of that, even though it was all covered, it didn't have an impact. Um, but now, I think, I mean, once he be came into office, I think there was disappointment really early on. I mean, if you recall, within a few weeks after he was governor, you know, he had the showdown with the Senate over these um, ethics rules that he wanted. And instead of kind of working together, um, he shows up in Ron Richards' office. At least that was the storyline. And they got into a little fight. And, um, because he wanted certain things, and it wasn't a matter of talking. It was a matter of telling. And I think that seemed to be his approach throughout, um, is that he was telling the legislature what he thought they should do. Most of the time, he wasn't even in town, it seemed like. And he was busy raising money. We never know from where, um, which, which ran counter to what he campaigned on, especially early on when he was on uh, our Politically Speaking podcast in January 2016. And I think that... His comments that he made then about the importance of transparency and donations, I think, will live on because every virtually every media outlet in this state has used that um, his comments because what he did when he became office was so counter to that. What I found is that the most important thing is that there's transparency around the money. We've already seen other candidates set up these secretive super PACs where they don't take any uh, responsibility for what they're funding. We saw secretive super PACs who are attacking Tom Schweik, where people hide behind these other organizations. And there will probably be I'm, more. And, and there will probably be more because that's how the game has always been played. I've been very proud to tell people I'm stepping forward and you can see every single one of our donors because we're proud of our donors and we're proud of the campaign that we are running. You can't see me, but I'm making the shrug emoji. <laughs> not only did Greitens not live up to that comment, he benefited from an unprecedented amount of secret money. And, and we'll never know how many millions, but considering I, how large is Well, and Joe, you, you point staff? this out. Yeah, and you point this out a lot, Joe. 
the 17 million Republican Governors Association donation that he got. They play in races, but not to that tune. Well, you generally don't get the RGA throwing see, $17 million into a race. See, that's the thing. He was somewhat transparent in the primary. But once he won the primary in August 2016, all of a sudden his donations, virtually all of them, ran through the Republican Governors Association that gave him $17 million. The RGA and the DGA usually give favored candidates a few million, but not of that magnitude. And the thing was, he wasn't getting hardly any money from everybody else. So it was clear that his donor, some of his donors, maybe those who had been with him in the primary, were shifting money through the RGA in the general, and that money has never been, never, never been uh, tracked. And then, of course, uh, even before he was sworn in, he formed that uh, nonprofit to pay for his um, the uh, swearing in and the inauguration. He's never told us where that money came from. And then in New Missouri, which James, Jason just mentioned, which was an offshoot of that, we will never know. Then he set up something to help pay his legal bills. We will never know. I, I believe we, where all that money we, we came may from. find out the legal bills because it's a different type of nonprofit, but it's possible that could be paid for with another nonprofit. I mean, exactly. I, New Missouri could be paying the legal bills. We don't for know. All we know. Yes. I, I, listen, I mean, it may have come off during this entire discussion over the last 1.5 years that we were biased against this type of behavior. But journalists, by their nature, want to know as much information as possible. Because we believe the public needs to know. And Joe and I have been following campaign finance for, for years, and we often did stories about who was giving money to particular candidates. Not because we wanted to embarrass them, no. but because we felt like the public deserved to know who is influencing our, our political process. And um, it's very it was very disappointing to me that Greitens made that type of comment and then not only didn't live up to it, but didn't live up to it in a spectacular manner that has never been seen before in Missouri politics and frankly should never be seen again. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not naive. There will be 501c4s and secret money that will go through Missouri politics. And especially with Amendment 2, that, that sort of behavior is now incentivized. But um, I, I do know that when... Now, future Governor Parson was on our show, and I'll play this clip near the end. He, he talked kind of against the idea of dark money and secrecy and personal attacks. In fact, I'm going to play that clip right now. This is from 2016 edition of our show. And the words to me are, are, are pretty powerful. We keep pushing the envelope. We keep pushing the envelope, and we keep pushing it to where we're starting to trying to talk about people's character, their honor, and their families, and really just trying to destroy that uh, to win elections. And that's not what elections are about. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position, and why are you qualified to run? But anymore, it's got into such negative campaigning, the dark money, uh, the things that are involved in politics right now that, that I, you know, I'm tired of, uh, frankly. And I think there's a better path. It's okay for somebody to show the difference on my voting record. It's open. Anything I've done in my past that's public, I think that's open. But uh, we're, we're, the money is so big in this state anymore. You've got a lot of consultants across this state that are in this for the money side of it, uh, not in it for the right reasons. And, and, and frankly, on the Republican side of things, uh, each year goes by and we almost destroy one another in primaries. And, and there's nothing left by the time you go into the general elections. And if we don't change that way, 
if we really don't change the way we conduct ourselves uh, as political leaders, um, then I, I don't think it's a, a good future for us. I, I really don't. So I think it's important that, that we maintain some integrity and some honor in what we do. That was in May 2016, and I would argue that Missouri politics has never been uglier and nastier than it has been now. I think Governor Greitens deserves some of the blame for that because, you know, that a new Missouri attacked sitting GOP senators in pretty vicious ways, like Senator Shaw's phone number being highlighted to people. Um, and some of the discourse thrown Greitens' way was also pretty vicious, too. Yes. Um, and I, I do think that Governor Parson, if he is able to reset the tone in Missouri politics— not necessarily making everything warm and fuzzy and positive, because that's not realistic, but at least ratcheting things down a notch, I think that may end up being his biggest accomplishment more than policy. What do you think, Joe? Well, I think I think he has an opportunity. Will he uh, take advantage of it? Will he get caught up in other stuff? Um, I'm trusting that he won't be like Greitens and say one thing and be totally different uh, about what he what his beliefs are, um, will I think a lot of people and not just the press um, will be paying close attention to how soon to be Governor Parson deals with this stuff. I think it isn't interesting that the first thing he's tackling is the stuff with the uh, state board of education, uh, where Greitens had had these big fights and forced people off, and they haven't been able to meet in months, and that that is one of the first thing Parson wants to resolve, because that's a big issue in the edu education circles, especially in rural Missouri. So he can really change the tone just by fixing some of those things first before he gets to maybe some of the more explosive issues. Rachel, this will be a situation where we're going to have a governor who's not, doesn't really have national ambitions. I could see him serving two to six years and never running for anything again. We haven't really had a governor like that in a long time. I mean, I know that, you know, Matt Blunt only served one term, but he was pretty young. He could have run for a lot of things. And Jane Nixon was talking, bandied about as a national candidate, too, as was Bob Holden and Mel Carnahan and well, but, John yeah. Ashcroft and Kit Bond. You know? Well, and Mel Carnahan Did was running for the U.S. Senate when he died, and John Ashcroft and Kit Bond did end up in the U.S. Senate. Yeah. yeah. So, Rachel, what I mean, I know that you, you may, you're you kind of new to this state politics thing, given that your primary focus before this was all city politics. But what are you expecting from Parson? I mean, the word that keeps coming to mind is ambition. I don't know Parson nearly as well as you guys do, but he seems to be genuinely somewhat folksy. Like a, a shrewd political player and that he's been in the game for a while. He obviously was able to get elected to a statewide office, albeit in a Republican wave year. But I think he is he, he comes off as someone who is ambitious. You have to be ambitious to be a politician, but not to the extent that he doesn't appreciate the job that he has. And I think he appreciates the gravity of the situation that he's walking into knows from being the presiding officer of the Senate, being in Jefferson City, hanging around, knowing the people that he's going to be working with in the legislature, that, you know, and I think that's why a lot of the Democrats maybe wanted to keep Greitens in, is things may just go smoother now. Yeah. You, you, you're bringing civility back, um, you know, somebody who's kind of willing to, to work, to settle down, and who understands 
what he's coming into and the office of governor for what it is. So I want to spend the last few minutes giving kind of our final reflections on the Greitens era. I, I, I would like both of you to go first because I still need to think about what I'm going to say. So let's let's Rachel, why don't you go first? <laughs> Again, like Jason said, I'm pretty new to sort of the the state part of this, but I was at Greitens's watch party that night. I got dispatched out to the Chesterfield Doubletree, and there was a definitive split in the crowd that night between individuals who were wearing their Make America Great hats and were super excited that Trump was going to be elected, and then there were people there who were there to support Governor Greitens, who wanted absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump, who thought that Greitens was a different candidate than Donald Trump. Yes, they may both have not been, they were both political neophytes, but they saw something else in him that wasn't Donald Trump. And I have, you know, very sort of politically aware, involved family members just from reading the news. Most of my family is in medicine. Nobody is involved in politics. But they kept being struck by how much he was like Donald Trump in the end. Maybe with, you know, a higher level of education, you know, whatever you want to say, but came in to blow things up, saying they were going to do things differently and didn't. And I wonder how those people and the people who in his administration, some of whom I know personally, some of whom do believe in what the governor was doing, now sort of look at this individual, somebody who they thought would be different than Donald Trump, different than what had come in the past. Was he really different? Is he really that different? Well, you know, one of the things, I was at uh, this event that he had in the party. I was at a number of events, but this one that sticks in my mind was right before the Republican primary. uh, It was in a parking lot in Crestwood, and there were all these young people out there, and many of them had come from out of town, out of state, because they had read his book, and his book had inspired them, And in some ways, they said that he had helped turn their life around, that book. Uh, And I think that it's sad, but it's also telling. When you have somebody who's never run for public office before and who doesn't even have hardly anybody on his staff who've ever been in public office before and who is screaming about uh, uh, draining the swamp and throwing people downstairs, but who really doesn't know I mean, he doesn't really have a grasp of what goes on now. I mean, he he doesn't have a grasp of what they're doing and exactly what he wants to change. It's just he just wants change for change's sake without actually knowing what works and what doesn't. And I'm using this kind of as a metaphor. I think any official, anybody who runs for office who doesn't have a grasp of what the office does and so they can have a pretty decent knowledge of what it needs to be done in their view, I think this sets a stage for um, failure and disaster. And then when he got in, as as we said a gazillion times, combative, not listening, just, you know, my way or the highway, um, this whole kind of came across as somewhat arrogant. I'm not saying he was, but uh, but it often came across that way. And it's sad because it was missed opportunities. He got too busy looking at the uh, next shiny object, which he was hoping would maybe be vice president. And there's one thing I want to say about Parson. People forget he was originally running for governor. He had enough uh, self-awareness that he withdrew and changed to running for lieutenant governor because he's looking at the field and he's figuring out that maybe he doesn't have the votes to come out and the field's too big. 
That says something about a politician of any party when they're willing to look at what's going on, where they're in it, and saying, you know, I need to change direction because what I'm planning on doing isn't going to work. And Greitens never did that. Never looked at himself. I mean, at least that's the appearance. Never looked at himself. Never looked at what he was doing and saying, you know, I need to change direction. So I didn't know Eric Greitens before he decided to run for governor. Joe and I had both known Chris Coster probably between nine and years or more. Yeah. So um, 15, yeah. I had known him for almost nine years. So I knew what made Coster tick. I think we had a pretty professional relationship. I think Coster respected both of us as journalists. So the point of bringing that up is Greitens was a totally unknown quantity for me. And, you know, taking aside like what he said on the stump or when the microphone was on, my dealings with him when the microphone was off were, were very pleasant. And we talked about our kids who are basically the same age and the commonalities between them. We talked a couple of times about our shared faith. Rachel and I and the governor are all Jewish. And, you know, it wasn't lost on me that Missouri elected a Jewish governor after 2015 when some people insinuated that being a Jew was a liability and they were wrong. I think regardless of whether you liked or disliked Greitens, it was important for Missouri to prove people wrong on that front, especially after the horrible tragedy that came from Tom Schweik, a tragedy that, frankly, I still think about a lot. And I think that a lot of Missouri politicians and political figures still haven't gotten over three years later. I think that's what makes his fall all the more disappointing, not only from a political standpoint, but from a personal standpoint. I said on St. Louis on the Air that not only did Greitens fail himself and his family, but he also failed a lot of people that quit their jobs to work for him, who are now professionally adrift because of this situation. Um, He made it much more difficult for his party uh, to operate, at least maybe maybe in the short term. In the long term, Parson may be a better situation. And I, I think he really let the promise of his ability to become the most effective and prominent governor of a Republican standpoint in the history of Missouri slip through his fingers, through his own behavior and his lack of accountability for that. Um, it makes it. T- I have no joy in saying that. I don't dislike the governor at all. As I kind of mentioned before, my my dealings with him were were very positive. I got to talk and interview with him probably more than most Missouri political reporters. And seeing this slow motion disaster unfold was was a horrible experience. People say, "Oh, this was a story of a lifetime to cover." This was a, a nightmare story to cover. I'm sure it was or it was for both of you, too, and Marshall Griffin and our editors because of the amount of time it took up, the emotions that it elicited, and the, the, content. Uh, the, the content, the accusations, the, the very difficult subject matter that we had to talk about. There, there was no joy in covering this story. And when, when Greitens resigned, I felt, honestly, a sense of relief. It's not only because I'm going to be gone for a month on paternity <laughs> leave, but this was an exhausting experience. And at a certain point, it needed to end. And at a certain point, Missouri politics needed to, to be out of this, this loop. And I, I, I think that we should, we should not miss this opportunity by saying we, I mean, both reporters, 
politicians, the hangers-on in Missouri, should not miss the opportunity I think we missed after Schweik. Schweik should have been a wake-up call for us, and it wasn't. Like, politics got even more nasty after that entire situation. I don't think we ever came to terms with, with what should have happened after that. I, I, I'm more hopeful this time around because it was a governor resigning and not an auditor dying. But we, we can't continue like this. Well, one thing I want to say is that Greitens' theme, one of his big themes was if you want different, do different. The state needs to do that, but also he needs to do that for his own future he needs to follow his own advice. On that note, this will be the last time we do a Greitens Roundup. I want to thank everybody in internet land who listened to us over the last 13 or 14 weeks. As I said, this was not an easy undertaking to do. It required a whole lot of work from me, Rachel Joe, Marshall Griffin, our editor, Fred Ehrlich, all the people in the St. Louis Public Radio newsroom, KSDK. Missouri I, Public Radio stations throughout the state. I, 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 I. I, as I said before, this was not an easy story to cover. It was not a fun story to cover. And I'm very grateful to the many journalists, both here and other outlets in the state, who took the time and put, made the sacrifice to inform the public. So that's my, my parting, my parting uh, note for now. Jay Rosenbaum's follow me on Twitter that way, Joe. Jay Manis, that's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Rachel. At our Lipman, two I'll see you all in a month.